When looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Well, excuse me! Looking for good ideas for life? You're far from good hands. Hey, bud, what's your problem? If you think the listener is always right, you're far from the right place. Out of order! Even in the future, nothing works! Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, but a rebel by choice. Are you threatening me? If you want a host that floats between love and madness, and we know the night is always gonna be here anyway. Thinking of you's working up my appetite, looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. All right, guys, uh, listen to some blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Warning, creators of this game do understand the subject matter may be offensive to some, but they do honor the families and people that have been affected by these real-life tragedies that these individuals have caused. Wanna play a game? Oh yeah! Lover of true crime? Yes, yes, yes. Well, we got an interesting game for you to check out. Wow. With the mashup of influences such as horror movies, collecting cards, and RPGs. What? Led to giving birth to an incredible creation of this game. Killers, the card game. You are all my children now. This game is a collectible trading card game featuring some of the most infamous killers with tidbits of trivia on the back of each card to help you learn some insight to each criminal. Who the hell are you? Let's not forget, during the game, cops will be chasing you and these criminals. I'm a cop, you idiot! However, check out their website listed through all social media today, which can be found under Killers, the card game. Am I on the internet? I want to play a game. Hi, this is Mike Sealski from Philadelphia Inquirer and 94 WIP, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. your least favorite host in a podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, 
looking forward to this one and it for a couple of different reasons because the initial reason I booked this was because of this lovely book The Rise and the Pursuit of Immortality it talks about Kobe Bryant and it talks about his early years and stuff but the reason this worked out and got me a little more excited is because I'm from the Philadelphia area and this next guest writes for the Philadelphia Inquirer. He works with Glenn Mack now on WIP during Saturdays, if I remember that correctly. And there's a little news story that's come out this past couple days since Sunday. And we know everything online and in the media is true that the Philadelphia Eagles are going to the Super Bowl. But this guest, Mike Silski. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Great. So I'll go with the current topic at hand first with Philadelphia going back to the Super Bowl for the first time in five years, which is a good thing. And they happen to be playing Big Red in Andy Reid, which most sports fans are familiar with that history that he coached here 14 years and all that fun stuff. So between writing for the Inquirer, WIP, all that stuff. What kind of feeling do you have about the upcoming championship game, but the feedback you've gotten for fans as well? Well, I think it's interesting. It's a little bit different from what happened back in 2017, 18. Uh, I think that run felt a little more out of nowhere, uh, particularly because the Eagles had lost their starting quarterback. They had lost Carson Wentz uh, with a few weeks left in the season. And so the idea of them being underdogs and that they could go into the Super Bowl and beat the New England Patriots and Tom Brady and Bill Belichick with their backup quarterback was the kind of story that people in Philadelphia can really wrap their arms around. And this one's a little bit different in that I think everybody came into the season thinking the Eagles would be pretty good. They just didn't think that the Eagles would be this good. And the Eagles have been so kind of a, coldly efficient about how they've won games. They just go out there and beat the pants off of teams. And even if they don't play their best, like you could argue they didn't against the 49ers in the NFC championship game, they still win pretty easily. So uh, this is a little bit different. They're going to go into the Super Bowl as the favorite. And uh, that's not something that Philadelphia sports fans are generally pretty comfortable with. Uh, so it's this combination of, you know, they're, they're te- the team they root for isn't the underdog but there's still joy and anticipation that they could go win the Super Bowl. And the fact that it's against Andy Reid and the Chiefs, I think would make it all the more delicious to a lot of people. And I think you're right with what you said there in terms of the Philadelphia sports fan. But the mentality of it is we always wait for the other shoe to drop. Yeah, that's 100% right. You're looking to the sky for the anvil that's going to fall on your head because you're just waiting for something to go wrong all the time. And that really hasn't happened this season with the Eagles. Um, you know, they've been they've lost one game all year that Jalen Hurts has started. They're 16-3. and three. They have arguably certainly the best offense in the NFC, the best pass rush in the league. Uh, they're stacked at every position. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting to me because they're going into the Super Bowl and you could make a very compelling argument that they have a disadvantage at head coach 
and a disadvantage at quarterback, and yet they're still favored to win the game, which tells you how stacked they are up and down the roster. Which leads to my other question before we get into more of your story. And that being said, with the team the way it looks now in all season, obviously in about a month, six weeks or so, when we get into March and well past the game, win or lose, we're going to have the changeover of the NFL year. And there's going to be free agents, contracts, and just the business side and the offseason. We'll be looking towards the draft, all that stuff. What is this team going to look like moving forward with all that being said? It's a great question. Um, you know, Brandon Graham reportedly has said today that he wants to continue to play, that he wants to come back and remain an Eagle. Uh, you know, so that's, I mean, you're looking at a couple different dynamics, right? You're looking at a, a, a core of players who have been here a long time. I think we're, you and I are both thinking specifically Brandon Graham, Fletcher Cox, and of course, Jason Kelsey. Um, and maybe to a lesser degree, Lane Johnson, though I don't think Lane's in the danger of retiring. But those other three guys, you know, have been around a long time. Kelsey has thought about retiring for the last couple of years now. Uh, so that's an open question. I don't know what those guys are thinking beyond what's been reported about Brandon. Uh, I don't know what any of those three guys are thinking at this point, and I'm sure they're not even thinking about it, given that they've got a Super Bowl to play. Um, Jalen Hurts is going to be here. The question is for how much money. A.J. Brown will be here. Devontae Smith will be here. Dallas Goddard will be here. Uh, you know, there's going to be some changes on defense. You know, James Bradbury's probably going to get paid uh, somewhere. It may or may not be uh, with the Eagles. Uh, so the team is going to look different. You know, I, I, I've made this argument for the last several weeks that, you know, as, as Jalen Hurts started to play better and better, and anybody who's followed the NFL over time knows this, you get this, this scuttlebutt of like, oh, wow, well, the Eagles have their franchise quarterback. They've got the guy who is going to be at the helm for them for years and years to come. Isn't that great? And it is, but it also, in the modern NFL, increases the urgency to go all in right now because Jalen Hurts is only counting, what, under $2 million against the salary cap this year. He's the reason that they were able to build this great team around him because they had more space under the cap to do it. And then you get him playing at the level that he's been playing, and it's kind of the perfect melding of all the factors that go into creating a Super Bowl contender. So uh, the Eagles are all in right now with Hurts, and I think it'll get harder once they have to pay him what the market is going to demand that they pay him. So if you're, I, I would say if you're an Eagles fan or an Eagles follower, enjoy Sunday, February 12th as much as you can and hope for the best because, yeah, they might get back there, but it's going to be more challenging. Yeah, because twofold there. Yes, Jalen's going to want to get paid because that's been the talk even before the season started and taking care of your guy. And I can't fault anybody that gets paid, you know, in sports and stuff. You know, that can be a hot topic. But Absolutely. On the, on the other thing is, side is, do you think Jalen will – say, hey, I'll take a little less so we can maybe keep a little. I don't think so. I, I don't think so. Uh, you know, I, I just don't. I, I don't think that he's reached the level in his career yet um, from a marketability standpoint uh, where he could do that or even think about doing that. You know, Tom Brady gets held up a lot as a guy who would take less than market value. Tom Brady also became 
you know, he was making so much money in so many other places that he could afford to do it. Um, I'm not sure Hertz has reached that point yet. Maybe, maybe down the road he will, but I don't think he's there yet. I think he wants to get paid like the quarterback he believes he is. And he wants to get paid what the market will give him, which is going to be close to $40 million a year, if not more than that. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, I can't fault anybody. If you can get it, God bless you. Right. But, you know, I mean, like you said, he's not at that point where Brady and all says, hey, I can make this. I'll take five, 10 million less, but I can make it up over here. And other yeah, he, he's not there yet. He's yeah. not there yet. So obviously, as I mentioned, the book, The Rise. And first and foremost with this, what led you to say, I'm going to tell this story. And like I mentioned, you focus on his earlier life, uh, Lower Marion, all that fun stuff. So what was the inspiration for writing the book? Well, I, I got the idea about a month or two after Kobe died in January of 2020. And I'd written several columns about him for the Inquirer. And, you know, I, I thought to myself that there was a bigger story here and you being a Philadelphia, you know, native that probably know this, there's, there's this dynamic in Philadelphia. It's, it's almost like self-contained. It's almost like an under the dome kind of situation where uh, it's almost like Philadelphia is its own entity kind of cut off from the rest of the world. So people, people in the Philadelphia area knew the story of Kobe Bryant's early life really well, but I wasn't sure whether the entire country or even the kind of the globe knew it as well. Uh, because, you know, he joined the Lakers when he was 17 years old and he mm -hmm. died when he was 41. It was almost like he grew up and lived his whole life in front of the entire world. And I knew that there was an origin story there that was really interesting and really dramatic and, you know, had to do with him deciding to skip college and go to the NBA and had to do with a, uh, a black teenager who was going to high school at this kind of posh suburban school just outside of Philadelphia and his father had been a great basketball player and his mother was a big influence on him. And um, I thought that was a great story. And I kind of wanted to do Batman Begins for the Black Mamba. I wanted to tell uh, the origin story of Kobe Bryant. I thought that would have a lot of um, attraction to people. And you know, that's interesting. You bring that up and that's a big part of the book. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, that's a big part of the book because you talk about the relationship with his father, Joe. And from the basketball standpoint, he learned from what he saw, whether it be at the practice in Italy, practices in Italy and different points of dad's career at that point. But mom also being a big influence as well. And I've heard you say in other outlets and got the vibe from the book as well that he got that work ethic and Mamba mentality, I guess you would call it from mom. So there was an influence on both sides. Oh, oh, absolutely. Kobe was a, a complete mixture of Joe and Pam Bryant. I mean, Joe had all the athletic gifts in the world. If anything, he was kind of ahead of his time in the ball player that he was six foot nine, six foot 10 could handle, could shoot, could dribble, you know, big and fast and all any coach of his wanted him to do was like sit down low and play in the post. And he didn't want to do that. Uh, and then, and he was kind of a jolly guy, kind of a ne'er do well, um, you know, would miss the team bus to practice sometimes, 
you know, thought it would be great to play for the Sixers and then got there and realized he wasn't getting any playing time and wanted to go play somewhere else and eventually had to go to Italy to become the star he, he always thought he should be in the NBA. And then you get Pam, who's tough as nails, uh, made sure her children did their homework before they could play basketball or volleyball or soccer or anything else, uh, very protective of her children, was, as you said, the, you know, she brought the Mamba mentality to Kobe before anybody knew what the Mamba mentality was. And I thought it was hilarious when I heard this story, and I th- believe it's in a book. So, like I said, I was prepping for this, so so many mm-hmm. different outlets mixed together in the research. And over in Italy, at one of those practices, Kobe apparently had said pretty much "fuck you" to his dad's coach. Yes, that's right. It's in the book. Yes, yeah. um, it was funny. I mean, his parents could be disciplinarians very much so when it came to matters outside of basketball and Joe certainly was going to teach Kobe how to play basketball at an elite level but but Joe and Pam indulged him when it came to the sport uh, because they could see how great he was and was going to be and so uh, if Kobe wanted to play Kobe was going to play and if uh, if his dad's coach on a pro team in Italy told him hey Kobe we're, we're practicing here quiet down he would he would curse him out uh, at age eight, nine, ten. Um, so, yeah, you, you, you get a little glimpse of who Kobe was going to become once he grew to adulthood uh, in a moment like that. I was going to say, because fast forward to his playing careers, you could see that mentality. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's what led him to be as good as he was. Absolutely. Total ton of tunnel vision. Uh, a guy who knew at the earliest possible age that he wanted to be the greatest basketball player on the planet and was willing to do anything he had to do uh, to reach that goal. Well, I'm curious to know, with that being said, and we know the stats and all that stuff, and the game has changed from when Joe played to through the 80s to the 90s and whatnot to where we sit here in 2023. And I know it's always debated, but where does Kobe fit as far as when you compare him amongst the greats last year, they did the 75th anniversary and I was actually just watching the video that from the all-star game last year, when you talk all those guys and I know it's apples and oranges with the changes of the game, but where does Kobe actually sit? I think he's a top 10 player. I think he's in the latter five of the top 10. Uh, I think so much of this debate comes down to a person's own preferences about what kind of basketball player they like to watch. How much do you, how much accent do you put on statistics? How much do you put on aesthetics? You know, for, for me personally, like I'm partial to a guy like Kobe or Kareem or Akeem Olajuwon, who personally, you know, I think those two guys, not, not so much Kareem anymore. I feel like he's getting his due nowadays, but Olajuwon might be the most underrated basketball player of all time because you watch those guys play and the degree of difficulty of what they're doing just stands out so much. And, you know, as you reference nowadays, we're, we're more in a league of efficiency of the corner three pointer. What kind of shots are guys taking? Whereas if you watched a Kobe Bryant or an Akeem or an Allen Iverson and you watch the way that they play and the degree of difficulty of what they did, you know, the pull-up 19-footer off the dribble, Kobe taking it into the lane against bigger, stronger players, Iverson doing the same thing, the mobility of a guy like Olajuwon, um, 
you know, I, I might rank those guys a little bit higher compared to a Shaquille O'Neal or somebody along those lines. And then you can take into consideration a guy like Jordan, a Wilt, a Bill Russell, you know, their, their impact on the sport beyond just what they did on the court, what they did culturally, uh, and those sorts of things. So I put Kobe in the latter half of the top 10 uh, and somebody who I think his cultural aspect is still growing because he died young, because people felt like he had become a mentor and kind of a guru of basketball and the Mamba mentality in the later parts of his life. And I think it's, I think his mystique is only going to grow over time, to be honest. And there's that, and of course, unfortunately, it won't ever be answered. There's always that, what if he had lived and wasn't in the accent because of what you said there with the cultural standpoint, where a guy like Michael, who has an influence on the game as an ownership and everything else, or a guy you mentioned earlier in Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who I appreciate because of what he tries to do from a cultural standpoint and, or a Bill, what Bill Russell did when he was with us. And, you know, they, they tried to do things beyond the game. So. Yeah. I mean, I think Kobe's a really interesting case in that regard because at first glance, you would think he would be somebody who might be lost without the sport. Like, what is he going to do? He devoted himself so singularly to the pursuit of being a great basketball player What's he going to do once he can't play anymore? Well, he wrote and he made movies and he became a girl dad and he um, he softened a lot of the edges around himself. I think, you know, one of the things that makes Kobe interesting in the culture is, you know, this was a guy who put his very freedom at risk uh, with his actions in a in a hotel room in Colorado in 2003. And he managed either in reality or just by the perception to pull himself out of that. And, you know, some people will never forgive him for that or never or never give him any quarter for being anything other than an accused rapist. And I understand that. But to a large portion of the culture, Kobe came back from the depths. And I think uh, for those people, it gives his life deeper meaning and deeper resonance and makes him more admirable in some ways. Um, it doesn't even matter whether he actually became a better human being or not. We just perceive that he did. Yeah, because I was thinking of a professional wrestler who just recently died from the area here who had a trouble of his own for 10 years, 10, 12 years ago, whatever it was, because of a dumb perceived comment he made on social media. And social media didn't become a bigger thing till later in Kobe's career. But he was still this guy was getting heat still for something dumb he said and he, he was the first to say hey i effed up i said it mm -hmm. doesn't say it was right so i was thinking of kobe the same way like you said from the colorado incident that hey i had this major foul up what can i do to improve myself so yeah and and i think with just we in society like a redemption story you know, yeah. that's the thing that that differentiates Kobe from Michael Jordan, for instance, right? Like Michael never, at least that doesn't mean Michael Jordan's perfect, far from it. But it just means in the public eye, in the public perception, Jordan never had to redeem himself from anything, right? He was just Michael Jordan the whole time. And if he if he gambled a little bit too much, oh, okay, well, maybe that makes him more relatable to the average Joe who likes to gamble. And if he says, oh, Republicans buy 
sneakers too. Oh, well, he's corporate and soulless and he only cares about making money and selling sneakers. Um, big deal. Kobe, you know, was accused of and charged with doing something awful and terrible and heinous. Exactly. And, and managed to pull himself back from that. You know, no matter what you think about what happened in that hotel room, the perception is that he rallied from that. And I think people, the public likes that kind of story, um, yeah. whether, you know, never mind how much truth there is to it. We don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there. Right. Me neither. Yeah. You know, I hope everything, you know, it is what it is. I can't, you know, right. really speak to it because I wasn't mm -hmm. there. And it it'd only be hearsay and such. Yeah. But with the book and telling the story, I found it interesting that you found that Kobe having a feeling of awkwardness coming up, coming back to the Philadelphia area at like 13 or so because of spending a lot of time over in Italy with his family where him and his sisters would speak Italian at school and you know, kind of feel like they're in, in their own bubble. But you also talk about the looking for what am I going to do besides basketball, even at an early age. So do you think he ever truly found that? You mentioned about the writing and the making movies and things like that, what he was starting to do post-career, being trying to be a good dad and all that stuff. Do you think he found himself whole post-career or even beforehand? I think he was on his way there. Yeah. I mean, he always had a lot of winds blowing through him, you know, even when he was singularly devoted to being a great basketball player, he still loved reading. He loved his English and literature classes in high school. His English teacher sophomore year became one of his uh, advisors and mentors. Um, and I think later in his career, you know, once he retired later in his life, I think he found himself saying, you know what? I love writing. I love the creative process. Um, I'm going to be a great dad. I'm going to teach Gianna how to, how to play basketball. I'm going to talk to athletes and college and professional teams and, you know, become this kind of motivational speaker, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, I think he was on his way to doing that. I think he liked being Kobe Bryant in that way. You know, he didn't need to go out and play the game. You know, Michael, Michael felt the need to retire and then come back and then retire and then come back. Kobe didn't wasn't feeling that need. He had done what he need what he had done in basketball and it was time for him to move on and channel that en energy into something else. Well, my final question for you and it's a two-parter here and I know we can spend all day on it. And the book like I said is The Rise Kobe Bryant in the Pursuit of Immortality, but what was the biggest reveal for you when you said, all right, I'm going to put this book together. But also, would that reveal have been in the famous tapes that were eventually found on the book that was being worked on from Kobe's early life? Well, actually, no. So the tapes, um, a confidant of Kobe's, Jeremy Treatman, a friend of his, the two of them were working on a book in 1996 and 1997 when Kobe was 17, 18 years old. And they never finished it, but Jeremy found the tapes and gave them to me. And so I was able to listen to them and leave all that stuff in the book. But I think the biggest reveal came from people who knew Kobe back then, but who really hadn't been interviewed and had the chance to talk about him before. So 
And, and, and what talking to those people allowed me to do was to understand that you really could tell the story of Kobe's early life and have it be a precursor or foreshadow to everything that was going to come after, good, the bad, all of it. I mean, there's a revelation in the book where, you know, something is, as, you know, we were talking about what happened in, in Aurora, Colorado a minute ago. When he was a senior in high school, Kobe tried to walk out of a sexual harassment seminar. And he told his guidance counselor that he didn't need to listen to this. You know, that's just, it's just a little insight. Uh, I spoke to friends of his who weren't connected to the basketball team. And he knew them through the Lower Marion High School Student Voice Organization, the Black Student Union at Lower Marion. And they presented a side of Kobe and kind of his search for his identity that nobody had really touched on before. Um, so all those little things, you know, his teammates and his classmates and his teachers and his coaches, they all provided little snippets that showed Kobe as, as, a, as a man in full even at a young age. And I think that was the most revealing part of it. It didn't necessarily come from Kobe and those tapes, although they were great and they were revealing in a lot of different ways, but they kind of intensified and enhanced what people already knew. It was the other thing, the other, these, uh, this other material that came from outside sources that I think really, really uh, helped me present him in full. And I was just thinking about it. And folks, check out the book if you get a chance. It's Amazon, all that fun stuff. I'll share links. But like I mentioned, you are working with Glenn Macnow on WIP. And you came in with Jody Mac to fill in for, or not fill in for, but replace, if you can, a Hall of Fame writer and all-around sports guy, Ray Dittinger. Mm -hmm. So what has it been like working for or working with Glenn since you have? And are you guys going to be doing this, going to the Super Bowl or anything like that? What's upcoming? Yeah, it's it's been great. Glenn has made the transition very easy. Um, it's been very helpful and organized. And, you know, he's got 30 years in sports talk radio at WIP, and I'm just trying to learn as much as I can from him. Uh, Ray's been very gracious as well. Uh, I am I am going to be in Phoenix and and the surrounding Glendale area for the Super Bowl. I head down there uh, this coming Sunday. Uh, we're recording this on the Wednesday, you know, two Wednesdays before the Super Bowl, and um, I'll do the radio show with Glenn Mack now this Saturday, and then I'll fly out to Phoenix the following day, and I'll be there the whole week. Um, so, I mean, look, this is this is the time of this is a situation that gets everybody excited about talking about the Eagles. Uh, and that's a wonderful thing to be a writer at the Inquirer, to be a host on WIP, because uh, people are engaged, they're interested, they want to talk, they want to hear what you have to say. And that's nothing but a good thing. With that being said, and I want to bring this up, because you are a about as independent as you can be with media and it's obviously changed a lot over the years since you got involved starting with the inquiry and all so how do you balance your opinion but also tell the story that's a great question uh i think it depends on the nature of what i'm writing about um when it comes to writing my column or speaking on the radio when i give my opinion uh, i'm not a yeller or a screamer generally speaking doesn't mean you're I'm not howard eskin <laughs> sorry nobody could be howard um <laughs> But, you know, the reason I don't do that, uh, number one, is because, 
everybody can do that nowadays. You know, whether you're talking about social media or talk radio or Facebook posts or Instagram, there's a lot of yelling and screaming. And so I don't want to get lost in that. I want to try to be uh, a little deeper, a little smarter. And then when I do yell and scream or get really fired up about a particular topic, then it'll have more impact and more resonance. Um, people will stand up and take notice that, oh, if, if Sealski's weighing in this strongly, he must really feel it. He's not just doing it to do it. Uh, and then when the time comes to tell a story, whether you're talking about a book about Kobe Bryant, or I have a story coming out, uh, in the next day or two about Trey Turner, for instance, I went down to Raleigh, North Carolina and did some reporting about Trey because he went to North Carolina state for college. Um, then there's that lane I can be in too. And, uh, I like both aspects of my job. You're right about the independence. I really treasure that. I don't want to be beholden to anybody but my own uh, sense of what a good story is and my own opinions. And I'm very lucky that the Inquirer and WIP allow me to do that. Well, this is the final question for you. Like you said, we're talking on February 1st. This will be out in the next couple of days. But as we sit here at almost 1230 in the afternoon here on February 1st, what do you think is going to happen with the Super Bowl? Can we put our genie hat on like uh, Johnny Carson yeah. used to do? Yeah, exactly. I, I can be Karnak, right? Yes. Um, yeah, I think the Eagles are going to win. I just do. I, I, I think they're the best team in the NFL. I think they're the most complete team in the NFL. I think they can win any game any way they need to. The only game they lost this season when Jalen Hurts started and played was to Washington. And it was a game in which they were uncharacteristically sloppy, committed three turnovers, and they still would have won that game had Quez Watkins, while he was on his way to the go-ahead touchdown, not fumbled. Uh, they would have won that game, too. So they've given me no reason to think that they can't beat the Chiefs. I think the fact that Patrick Mahomes is playing on a, with a high ankle sprain is a damaging thing to the Chiefs. I think uh, they're going to struggle to protect him. And I think they're going to struggle to stop the Eagles offense. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think there's going to be a parade sometime after Sunday, February 12th. And, uh, you know, people are going to be lining Broad Street. Again, which is a good thing. Mike, thank you so much for the time. My pleasure. Thanks so much.
Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hello, wrestling fans. This is Lanny Poppo, formerly the genius of WWE. You are listening to Crazy Train Radio. Ooh, yeah. 